Merry Christmas. Got you a present today. John chapter 6. Open up and turn to John chapter 6 in your Bibles. We are back again in verses 48 through 59, page 892 in the Pew Bible. Are you tired of John 6 yet? I hope not. Not good. I hope not because I'm not, so you're stuck with it. But it is Christmas Sunday, and Christmas is supposedly all about Jesus. Well, John 6 is all about Jesus. It is Christmas Sunday, supposedly, all about the incarnation of Jesus. Well, 651, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. That's all about the incarnation of Jesus. So we have before us here a perfect Christmas text. Uh, you are welcome. Let's, last week we began to unpack this masterful metaphor from Jesus. I am the bread of life. Bread is food and food is life. But that's not all that bread is. Bread is food and food is also delight. Jesus is revealing something about who he is with this metaphor. He is life and he is joy. Therefore, to get and experience life and joy, you have to get and experience Jesus. And so, he not only tells us something here about who he is, but also tells us something about how we get and experience him as he continues to expand and unpack this metaphor. Again, talk about controversial and confrontational claims. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's, what in the world? What is he talking about? What does that mean? That's what we again want to try and sort out this morning. Last week, I titled the sermon, Faith as Feeding Part 1. This week, you ready for it? Faith is Feeding Part 2. I made that joke in Sunday school. It wasn't funny. I went for it again in second service and still wasn't funny. Sorry. We ran through four points last week. The bread of death, the bread of life, the death of the bread of life, and then feeding on that bread of life, where I encouraged you to begin to think of faith as feeding. I want to better help us understand what faith is, as Jesus does here with the metaphor of feeding. But still, feed on Christ by faith. And you're probably thinking, okay, how? Here, what? What really does that mean? What really does that look like? I mean, that, that's, that's today. But first, another metaphor. I am ladyless right now. I drove my all-female crew down to North Carolina last Sunday to get them a little bit of extra time with the family, and then I'll join them tomorrow. So I'm missing my girls, and I've got them on the brain. So you get a, a family uh, illustration at the beginning. My girls are the best, except at eating. Except at feeding. Uh, our girls are terrible picky eaters. Uh, whose fault is that? Yes, good. Let's, let's be clear. Mine. Yeah. Like I said, there's really no such thing as bad kids, just bad parents. There's also really no such thing as picky kids, just bad parents. Right? That, again, that, that's us on the food front, and I, I, can, I can own that. Uh, I would consider us... Uh, at least uh, average to slightly above average parents, maybe. I don't know, though I have regular bouts of parenting despair, and I'll pray a lot, I'll buy another parenting book, and then God's gracious and things will be all right. But we've really dropped the ball on the food front, and so we're slowly taking steps to remedy that. And the main step is to force them to eat and feed on things they don't want to. And this is not fun, but it is good for them. It is necessary. 
But this dawned on me uh, last week, this, this last week, before I came back, Melissa's mom really wanted to take us all out to a Japanese steakhouse. You know, one of those where they, they cook in front of you? It always says authentic Japanese steakhouse, and it's not authentic, right? But, but it is delicious. Um, but she's like, we got to go to this thing. And I said, bad idea. Don't waste the money on our kids, because they're expensive. But we went anyways. And it was delicious. I ate an embarrassing amount of food. Not a single person at the table finished their food. I finished my food and Tessa's food, and then I ate everyone else's food the next day for lunch. But the girls actually did better than I thought they were going to do. Uh, they, they loved the rice, they did some of the salad, they did okay with the chicken. But as I was watching Emma first taste the chicken, not in nugget form, um, she, she held it in chopsticks. You know, we got the little kid connector thing that helps the kids with the chopsticks. Uh, I need those too. Um, and she, she, I watched her examine the chicken, and then she took like the tiniest little nibble on the tiniest little piece of chicken possible. It was like a cell of chicken. It was, <laughs> again, she basically licked the chicken. And as I was watching her, I realized how often we have made them try something. They've taken one of these lick-like nibbles and declared that they do not like the food that they have tasted. That's not eating and feeding, right? You cannot taste something like that. You cannot learn to like something like that. You cannot experience food like that. And so I got to wondering, sitting around the massive table, if maybe for many of us, our feeding on Christ has been little different than my daughter's feeding on new food. Maybe the problem for many of us is not that we have tried Christ and found him wanting, but that we have not yet ever truly tried Christ. And have we tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And, and here's why Jesus' metaphor is so good. And he's revealing to us the true nature of faith. Not agreeing with some truths about Jesus, but feasting on Jesus. Being filled by Jesus. Being satisfied by him. Loving him and living by and through and for him. Do you know what it means to feed on Christ. And have you ever truly tried him? Let's go back to this text and seek to better and more practically understand faith as feeding. We're going to walk through four points. Again, first, we have to establish that this text is about faith, first of all, not about the Lord's Supper. So we got to establish first that you feed on Christ only by faith. But then we're going to see that there are two aspects of faith, and we almost focus exclusively on the first. Point number two, we'll see, of course, we feed on Christ by faith and be saved. That's eternally important. But we often stop there. I want us to emphasize point three. We feed on Christ by faith and be sustained and, and we are satisfied. And so then practically, how do we do this? Point number four, we feed on Christ by faith through the word. Um, that's, that's that word that saves and sustains. That's what we want to spend a lot of our time on at, at the end. Um, that word that, as we just sung, shows us Christ. Uh, it was a perfect song uh, for this sermon. So let's read that word first that shows us this Christ, and then we'll begin to walk through it. John chapter 6, I'm going to pick up again in verse 48 and read through verse 59, um, but I want you to pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of my world, for the life of the world, is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. If you would bow with me, um, let's go to the Lord first with a word of prayer. Father, as we have sung, we now pray that you would show us Christ. Father, Christ is found in this word, these words that are living and active, these words that you have promised uh, do not and will not return to you void. So we ask now that you would work through your word by your spirit. Father, I pray that you would help me, help me to magnify Christ, help my desire to be not for my glory, but for your glory. Help my desire uh, to be to edify your people. Father, we want to find satisfaction and life and joy in Jesus Christ. Father, we so often struggle to do this. And so we ask that you would help us, Lord. Show us how great he is. And Father, we cannot see this apart from you. And so we ask, I ask that you would help us. Apart from you, uh, we can do nothing. Um, So Father, help the preaching of your word. Help the hearing of your word. Father, help us to love Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, first, we need to briefly step back and defend our claim that this text is about faith. So point number one, we need to see that John 6 is about faith, not the Lord's Supper. And I mentioned last week that we need to do this briefly because this is such a debated and divisive text. I've made the case before that the difference between we Protestants and between our Roman Catholic neighbors and friends is the question of authority, right? The question of says who? Now, we both, of course, point to and rely on the scriptures as our authority. The difference is that most important of words coming out of the Reformation alone or sola. Our authority is scripture alone, whereas Rome elevates the teaching and tradition of the church to the level of scripture. That's the fundamental root difference between Protestants and Catholics. But the most visible and apparent difference is probably the mass. And the Catholic understanding of the Mass is in large part dependent on Rome's understanding of what we just read in John chapter 6. They would disagree entirely with my interpretation of John chapter 6. And their argument is it's fairly simple. When Jesus says four times in 53, 54, 55, and 56, some version of whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, well, they understand him to be speaking literally. They understand him to be speaking of the the Eucharist, where they believe that the the bread and the wine are transubstantiated or transformed into the actual body and blood of the Lord in a mysterious way, uh, which they then eat and drink. Listen, our Catholic friends are actually not alone here. Uh, Lutherans also tend to argue that Jesus is speaking about the Lord's Supper. 
in John chapter 6. Now, Lutherans deny that the bread and the wine in any way become the body and blood of Jesus, but they do argue that the physical body and blood of Jesus are literally present, as it's often put, in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Right? That's what they call consubstantiation in contrast to Rome's transubstantiation. Right? You can hear the difference in the different prefixes. Trans can mean change, con means with, right? So Catholicism, the bread and the wine are mysteriously changed into the body and blood of Jesus. Lutheranism, the body and blood of Christ are really present with the bread and the wine. But both would point to John chapter 6 to argue that this must be the case in some way because of what Jesus says. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, that has to be the Lord's Supper. Many will argue. Listen, one of the great failures of the Reformation was the Reformers' inability to agree and unite on their understanding of the Lord's Supper. There's this infamous story from October of 1529 and the Marburg Colloquy in Germany, which was the only meeting of any two of the three great figures of the Reformation. It was there that Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli came together in an attempt to uh, come to an agreement, a compromise on the Lord's Supper. And they would utterly fail, largely because Luther was a bit of a hothead. Uh, Luther refused even to shake Zwingli's hand in the course of the whole uh, thing. But the story goes that in the middle of one of the heated debates, Luther gets up, he grabs a piece of chalk, rips back kind of a tablecloth, and writes on the table, Hoke est corpus meum, which is, this is my body in Latin. Throws the chalk down and he sits down and he refuses to budge. See, Luther was insistent that the bread and the wine had to in some way be the body and blood of Christ. And Zwingli disagreed. And they left without a compromise, never to meet again. Zwingli would die two years later on the field of battle in Switzerland, defending his country from, from attack. But ironically, Luther went to great lengths to argue against John 6 being about the Lord's Supper. Luther was very clear that John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Uh, Zwingli and Luther did at least agree on that. And Lutherans have actually since diverged from their founder's position on this chapter. So why did Luther not think that John 6 was about the Lord's Supper? Why can't this chapter be about the Lord's Supper? Three quick reasons. First, there is the problem of timing. Uh, we are probably about a year before Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper on the night when he was betrayed. Meaning, at this point in John chapter 6, there is yet no Lord's Supper. Right, so it's pretty simple. Jesus cannot be explaining an institution that he has not yet instituted. He cannot be teaching on an ordinance that has not yet been ordained. So the Lord's Supper comes a year after John 6. So John 6 cannot be about the Lord's Supper. It must be about something else. Second, there's the terminology of the text. In every other reference to the Lord's Supper and the other Gospels and in Paul's writings, the language is always Jesus' body. In the Greek, his body is his soma. Not once in all the writings is the word flesh or sarx used in reference to the Lord's Supper. That's the word that Jesus uses here. Not his soma, his body, but his sarx, his flesh. So again, Jesus must be talking about something else here. But third and most importantly, it is the absolute and salvific language that Jesus uses here that makes the Lord's Supper interpretation of John 6 impossible. 53, he says, unless 
you eat and drink me, you have no life in you. Verse 54, the one who feeds and drinks has eternal life. And is Jesus really teaching that unless we take the Lord's Supper and eat the bread and drink the cup, we have no life in us? Is he really teaching that the one who eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord's Supper has eternal life? No, of course not. This contradicts not only the whole argument of the Bible and this book, but even this very passage. Remember, Jesus has just said in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe. He has just said in verse 35 that whoever comes to him shall not hunger. Whoever believes in him shall never thirst. He has just said in verse 40 that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life. And he has just said in verse 47 that whoever believes has eternal life. And so when he now says in verse 54 that whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life, we can compare that to what we've read. We can compare that to verse 47. And we know that he is using this language metaphorically to beautifully and brilliantly teach us about the true nature of saving faith. You feed on Christ only by faith. John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. John 6 is about faith in the Lord. Which brings us to our second point. You feed on Christ by faith and you're, you're saved. This is the first thing that faith does. It saves. Again, the Lord's Supper uh, does not save. Again, it's not about the Lord's Supper. And I want us to see that faith is so much bigger and more beautiful than we tend to believe. And I want to do that by drawing out these, these two aspects of faith. We're starting first with initial faith, with saving faith. Again, the problem is that we often, we, we stop there. I want to encourage us not to do that and to encourage us to broaden our understanding, our definition of faith. But we cannot do that if we don't first start with this initial saving faith. And on this Sunday before Christmas, this is a great opportunity to remind ourselves this is what it's all about. This is why Christ has come. When Joseph finds out that his wife Mary is with child, a child which he knows cannot be his, uh, he is understandably concerned. But in Matthew 1.20, the angel comes and says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's even what his name means. Joshua and Jesus are the same name, Hebrew and Greek, and they both mean Yahweh, God, saves. And the angel specifically tells us, tells Joseph what Jesus will save us from, our sin. That's exactly what he has come to do. That's why he's being born. That's why Jesus says back in 654 that unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us. That's because sin is death. And so last week we looked at the bread of death, the way that we have all of us gone our own way and rejected God and his way. The God who created us, the God who sustains us, the God who is king, the God who is kind, the God who is Lord, the God who is love. The universal human condition is that we have all of us rebelled against that and rejected this God and said, no thanks, you're not good, we don't want you. And when you, when you reject the God who is life, you get death. This is why there is so much evil and misery and pain in the world. 
This is why there is so much evil, misery, and pain in our hearts. Sin. Sin separates us from the God who is life. Sin is death. And that's why Jesus has come. To save us from the sin, which is death. That's what this whole book and this whole passage is about. And in verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And that's the incarnation. Jesus, who is God, has taken on flesh and he has become man. I was talking with the Muslim man who picked me up from the airport uh, this week and he went straight, he knew his stuff. He went straight to this. He just said flat out, do you believe that Jesus is God? Yes, and I tried to emphasize to him, I tried to emphasize how the bigness of our problem required the bigness of this solution. And it was so bad that God himself had to come for us to save us. But then look at how much of a demonstration this is of God's love. God himself did come down um, to save us. That's love. That's grace. Uh, So pray for Farik. Uh, Back to verse 51, Jesus goes on to say, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What? How? And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What does it mean to give your flesh? It means to die. Again, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the one thing that you need, and this is the one thing that Jesus has come to do. He was born, that's Easter, Nope, <laughs> that's Christmas to die. That's Easter. And why? For us, in our place. We deserve death for our sin, but the amazingly good news of the gospel is that God provides that death for us himself in sending his son, in sending Jesus to take and die the death that we deserved. Sin is death. Jesus, who is life, comes to die that death for us so that we could live. And again, and how do we get That life. How do we benefit from the work that Jesus has done? And that's what this whole passage is about. Not by eating some bread and drinking some juice. It's about only through faith. He says, only believe, only receive. And the whole world is telling you what work you must do to be good enough. And how's that going for you? That's what I asked the man in the car the other day. how's How's that purity thing going? Jesus tells us in verse 29 what the work is. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You cannot solve your sin problem, but Christ can. You cannot be good enough, but Christ is. He has done everything that is required for you to live, and he tells you, only believe. And that is saving faith. It is the gracious gift of God by which we are enabled to believe in Christ, to trust him as our Savior and Lord. Faith is, is seeing and saying, oh, it's, it's the awareness first that, oh, I am, I am wretched. Right? I am a sinner through and through. Oh, I must then have no hope within myself. Oh, he is so gracious and glorious and good that he is a suitable savior. He is my only hope. Therefore, I put myself entirely in his hands. I trust in him completely. And that's faith. Believe and live. This is why we preach Christ crucified every week. We present and we proclaim Christ, the all-glorious one, God himself in the flesh, big and beautiful, gracious and good. We love him. We have found life in him by his grace and we want others to see him and savor him for who he is and what he has done. And so believe and live 
Jesus is teaching us here about that initial saving faith. He is the bread of life. Everyone who looks on him and believes in him will have eternal life. But, Christians, I can hear some of you thinking, I have done that by God's grace. And, you know, if that grace is so good, if Christ is so glorious, if what I have been rescued from so unimaginably horrible and what I have been given so indescribably wonderful, why am I often so miserable? Why am I often so sad? Why do I so often struggle? Yeah, that's a great question. We've all been there. We've often been there. Maybe it feels like we've always been there. Why is that? Well, in part, it's because there's more. Because this faith thing gets even better. This one point, as great as it is, is not all that faith is. Point number three, I want us to consider faith also as sustaining and satisfying spiritual feeding. You feed on Christ by faith and you're sustained and satisfied. And here's what I believe we often miss. Here's what I have missed for so long and still struggle to get. Uh, go back to the text. I don't think Jesus is only talking about the future. He's also talking about the present. Grace, Christ's work for us in our place, affects not only our future, but also our present. And whereas we tend to grasp what we've just discussed, right? Grace's effect on our past, all right, our sins are forgiven, our death debt is paid, I, I get that. We tend to get its effect on our future, all right, eternal life will be raised up on the last day. What about right now? Does Jesus say anything here relating specifically to right now? Verse 56. Look at verse 56. I love this verse. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. He's been saying eternal life. You think eternal life is coming. He doesn't say eternal life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's a huge verse. That's a huge, life-changing concept. One scholar argues that verse 56 is the climax of this whole discourse. I think I disagree with him, but I like, I like what, he's, what he's leaning towards here. Because here's what we often miss. We've said on a number of occasions that the union with Christ is the most important, least talked about doctrine. Well, here we have the first reference to union with Christ in the whole of John's Gospel. Remember, Christians are those, as Paul says again and again, who are in Christ. That's our identity. And that identity affects us, past, present, and future. In 54, Jesus has just said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now here he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Yeah, those are intimately connected and cannot be separated but I do believe that they are somewhat distinct. Eternal life flows from a union with Christ. But I think here Jesus is starting to emphasize another aspect of that union here. And I think that's indicated for us in the following verse. Look at verse 57. He says, notice how, how much life is in this verse. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. You know, again, it's all connected, but I believe that the focus here is more on our current continual communion with Christ, right? And notice it's about, this is about our experience and exercise of fellowship, and I believe that because of how Jesus roots it and connects it. Notice that he says, as I live, 
because of the Father, because of this ongoing experience of life and communion that I have with and in the Father, so also you will live because of me in the same sort of ongoing experience of life and communion. This is a present possession in Christ. This is a present reality and experience. And going back to verse 56, I think a very important verb there indicates this as well. And that verb is abide, mino in the Greek. It means to remain or to abide or to stay. Sometimes just straight literally, but often more metaphorically. Listen, John loves this word. This is another John word. This is an important word for his theology. This is actually the 12th time that John has used this word already in his gospel. We saw it twice back in chapter 1, uh, verses 32 and 33, where John the witness testifies that he saw the Holy Spirit descend and menos remain upon Christ. That's, that's a revealing picture of the intimacy and importance of this word. We saw this word next in 1, 38 and 39. It's also similarly used in 2, 12 and 4, 40, where it more literally means to, to stay. Remember in 1, 38, uh, two of John's disciples begin following Jesus. Jesus asks them the most important of questions. Ask yourself this question. What are you seeking? What are you really after? But then the disciples ask Jesus in response, where are you staying? And then they stayed with him the same day, with that day. It's the same word, to stay, to abide, to remain. Chapter 3, verse 36, we saw that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains, abides, stays on him. That's a heavy one. 538, this one's important. Jesus is confronting the religious authorities, and he says to them, you do not have his word abiding in you. We'll come back to that. That's, that's important. And then in uh, verse 27 of this chapter, in this very discourse, Jesus has just said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. It's the same word. For the food that abides or remains to or for eternal life. And so now here in verse 56, we have this word applied for the first time specifically to our relationship with Christ. Believing in him is abiding in him and he in us. What an intimate word picture. What an, what an intimate reality. And here's where it starts to become more clear that faith is so much more than believing that. Again, I made the case a, a few weeks ago that in the New Testament, in the, in the Greek, it is never believing in as the, Greek, as the English translates it. That's never what it says in the Greek. The Greek preposition attached to the verb believe is never in, but always eis, E-I-S, which means into or toward. See, faith in Jesus is movement toward and into Jesus. It is, it is the means of our connection and communion with him. It is our means of abiding in him. It is the means through which we grow in and further experience the communion, the sweet communion that results from our union with him. This is what it means to abide in him. One dictionary explains the more metaphoric meanings of this word as to maintain unbroken fellowship with, to be constantly present to help, to put forth constant influence. Those are wonderful. Christian, if this is true, in Christ, this is what you have. You have means of unbroken fellowship with God himself. You have Christ constantly present to help. You have Christ constantly putting forth his influence for you and in your life. 
Listen, in John, in his writings, eternal life is never just about the life to come. It is always about the life to come breaking into and affecting the life now. John, more than the other Gospels, tends to emphasize our present enjoyment of the blessings of eternal life. The age to come, the kingdom, is already breaking into and impacting the present age. This is life not only different in quantity, everlasting, eternal, but different in quality. It's the very quality of the life to come by the grace of God begun in our life now. And this life is fundamentally I just, I just really want to get to John 17. I want to skip around in John. We should try this. But in John 17, verse 3, we see that this life is fundamentally, Jesus tells us, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Listen, that has major implications for your present life right now. Jesus will go on to pray in that one chapter, verse 13, that we may have his joy. Verse 17, that we may be sanctified, made holy. Verse 22, that his glory may be given to us. Verse 26, that God's love may be in us. And again, that Christ himself may be in us. So just in that one chapter, in a few short verses, in one prayer of Jesus, we see this promise of abiding is the promise of Christ himself with us and in us. And then flowing out of that is the promise of fellowship with God himself. The promise of joy, the promise of holiness, the promise of glory, the promise of love. What an abundance of riches we have offered for us, to us here. We have here before us an infinitely glorious inheritance. Listen, we all know that the quality of life is largely dependent on relationship. It's just fundamental. All the studies, even secular studies, all this, like everything, everyone recognizes that the actual, any, any sort of happiness and joy fulfillment is found through and in relationship. Well, here we have the promise of relationship with the God who is life and joy and peace itself. And we know that's what we're given by grace in the gospel. Remember, grace is not a thing, but it's God himself giving himself in Christ to us. We know this is what we have. And yet, do we really? Where's the disconnect? Why do I so struggle to delight in this and to be defined by this and do everything that I do in light of this? Everything for his glory and gladly because he is so gracious and good. I actually think it's pretty simple. I don't really know the things that I claim to know. Not in the way that scripture means no. Jesus has said, whoever believes abides in me. But this is just a brief anticipation of what he will give further explanation in John 15. But since we won't be there for years, let's let's touch on that just for a second. Because there in John chapter 15 in verse 4, he commands us. It's an imperative. He gives us a command. He says, abide, same word, abide in me. And then he will go on to use that word, abide, ten times in those next few verses. Okay, so this is a really important concept for John. So here's all I want to answer for the next couple of minutes, for the, for the rest of our time. Your Christmas present is that maybe we can be a little bit shorter today. So your Christmas present. I just want, how? How do we do this? How do we abide in him? How do we, by faith, feed on him and find spiritual sustenance and satisfaction for our souls in him? How do we begin to bridge the gap between our confession and our experience. What's our fourth and final point? Feed on Christ by faith through the word that saves 
and sustains uh, and satisfies. No, it sustains and satisfies. And that's, that's a mouthful of a point. That's all right. Uh, that's what we need. Again, remember, we're looking for not just a little lick, but a total tasting and experiencing. Let's, let's cheat and peek ahead a few verses. Uh, the last song that we sang before we started comes from these verses. You know, we're going to come back and look at this text in more detail next time as we conclude uh, chapter 6. In verses 60 through 71, everyone leaves. As has been pointed out by others, the sixth chapter of John begins with 5,000 men following Jesus and ends with 11 men following Jesus. I had the privilege of taking a PhD seminar on the Gospel of John with Andreas Kustenberger, who is one of the foremost scholars of John today. He literally wrote the book on John. I have his commentary sitting on my desk. I use it weekly, and I can hear his Austrian accent as I read it. And commenting on the end of John chapter 6, Kostenberger writes, chapter 6 ends on a note of failure. Chapter 6 ends on a note of failure. Hey, listen, this is the end of the year. I jump on an airplane because I miss my girls tomorrow. This is my last sermon of the year. The end of the year is always a good time to look back. But yeah, ask yourself, what kind of note is your year ending on? Maybe it feels a little bit like the end of John chapter 6. Failure. Disappointment. Well, you're in good company. Because that's how John chapter 6 appears to end for Jesus. But as is often the case in Scripture, and especially in the case in much of John's writing, this is kind of like a theme for John, things are not always as they appear. And this chapter actually ends with a note of great hope. And a note that could provide you great hope as you also look to the year ahead. Everyone is left. Almost. Not the 11. Why not? I mean, ultimately, only because of the grace of God. But more specifically, look at verse 68, where Peter says, Lord, this is what we just sang. To, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I said, okay, you've, you've had a rough year. I believe, I, I believe you. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to look? Where else do you think that you're going to find life? Because Jesus is very clear in this chapter. It's, it's only here. It's only in him. So peek back up to verse 63. Here's the secret. And here's, here's the how. Here's the hope for the year and, and for the life to come. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Listen, this is how you abide in him. The word and the word alone is how you abide in him. And now hold on, because I, I, great, some of you are thinking, all of this, all of that, and you're just going to tell us to read our Bibles more, right? Well, again, hold on. I do want to say that. But I want to say it more, and I, I, I want to say more, and I want to say it better. And I don't want to command to you another duty. I want to commend to you a delight. And I want to move beyond the just read the Bible more. Hey, listen, it, it, it starts with that. You do need that. But I want to leave you with another encouragement as we transition from one year to the next. Because here's what I think that we miss. Because I know, at least I'm speaking to myself, here's, here's what I miss. Providentially, my scripture reading uh, yesterday had me in Hebrews 
Um, and yesterday morning, I was struck for the first time. Don't you love this? Again, I've read this verse I've, uh, hundreds of times, I, I mean, dozens of times. Maybe that's hundreds is bold. But a lot of times. This is the first time I was ever struck like this by Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The author, maybe Paul, writing to Christians, including himself, in this command says this. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What have they heard? They've heard the word. Lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's what I want to encourage us to do as we approach a new year. In recent years, people have been arguing that we increasingly live in an attention economy. Your most valuable commodity is your time and your attention. And companies are after it. They have made it into your pocket. They are after your eyes. They are after your attention. And they know that if they can capture your attention... And they can capture your time. They can capture your information. They can capture you. And then they can profit off of the whole thing. The more you give them your attention, the more they get profits and money. And they don't care what they have to do to get that attention. But, listen, this is a diabolical use of a very biblical concept. You become what you behold. You look like what you most look at. Your sight shapes yourself. And this is why we are repeatedly commanded throughout the New Testament. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? Are you filling your mind with those type of things? Colossians 3, 1 through 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Consider him. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see how those verses are all about attention? They're all about beholding and thinking. My children never like the new food they try because they only try it once and they only lick it. And for many of us, our trying of Christ and our tasting of his word, it's, it's little better. Pay much closer attention to what you have heard. I mean, obviously, you know where I'm going. What I'm commending to you is the biblical practice of meditation. This is why we read Psalm 1 earlier. The blessed man is not the one who reads God's law, but who meditates on God's law day and night. And this is what we miss. This is where and why we struggle. Again, biblical meditation is not like the world teaches, right? This, this emptying of the mind. Biblically, meditation is, is the filling of the mind with the things of God. Your mind is filled with something. Biblical meditation is filling it with the things of God, with the word of God. Meditation is using our attention with great intention. And this is what I want to challenge you and encourage you to pursue as we enter 2022. Maybe what you need is not another reading plan, but a meditating plan. Because this could change everything for you. God has told us this is where blessing is found. It's found in his word, which is in no mere word. We have the very words of God himself here. These words that are living and active. 
I'm going to steal from myself in Sunday school a little bit. Like, we get so disappointed sometimes. We're like, oh, you talk, there's too much about the word, right? It's got to be something else, right? There's something better and more and some sort of... Also, words are everything. You know, words are everything. I just consider how much life and joy and comfort you find from an encouraging word from someone that you look up to and love. Right? Consider how we reveal ourselves to one another through the word. How much delight I found when I met Melissa. Uh, yeah, beautiful, red hair, uh, amazing. Yes, she's awesome. But what did I really find when we started to communicate? And I heard her words. And I heard of her word, love for the Lord. I heard of her love for kids and how good of a teacher. I started to hear her words and then, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's who I want. She's what I want. Words, listen, we can't, words are life. Our words are where we find our, our satisfaction, our sustenance, our encouragement, and our comfort. Words are everything. So we should never minimize this. This is God himself communicating himself to us, speaking to us, communing um, with us. Uh, he saves and sustains through this. He's present with us. He comforts, he encourages. We have his words. We need to learn to utilize them and access them. We are saved by faith, praise God, but there's even more. It's kind of like we were destitute orphans living on the street. And then we found out we had a relative who left us an inheritance of a million dollars. A million dollars. We're saved. We're saved. We have everything that we need. We can get off the street. We can get the food that we needed. We now have access to great wealth. We can live and enjoy that million dollars. What a blessing. But can you imagine if that orphan had misheard what if the inheritance was not a million dollars, but a trillion dollars? There are no trillionaires, by the way. I don't, I don't understand that number. It's a million millions. It's, it's going to be Musk or the Bezos are going to be the first ones. But there isn't one yet. The orphan had access to that. That's like flying to the moon money, right? The orphan had access to that, but never utilized it. See, God's word and meditation on that word is how we access the infinite inheritance that we have been graciously given in Christ now, that we benefit from now, and we can experience now in this present life. Pay closer attention. How? And let me encourage you to start with Psalm 1. Do you struggle with scripture memory? You're all liars. All your hands should go up. I do. It's Psalm 1 is six verses. My four-year-old learned Psalm 1. You can do six verses. And I can honestly say that by the grace of God, Psalm 1 has changed my life. I engage with media differently because of Psalm 1. I educate my children differently because of Psalm 1. I do everything differently because of Psalm chapter 1. And Psalm 1 is all about blessing. And it is all about finding it in God's word and the life that is found. So my challenge for you is to memorize Psalm 1 for the new year. And then my encouragement to you is the Psalms for the whole year. You know, the Psalms, by the grace of God, can and will change your life. Listen, reading the whole Bible in a year is great. It's not a magic bullet. Start with the Psalms. Give me one Psalm a day. Some of them are so short. You can break up Psalm 119 if you want to. But give me one a day. Read it. And also, listen to it. You know, I understand that reading is hard for some. You don't have to read the Word. You know, for about 1,500 years, most Christians could not read the Word, right? Because they're literate. Uh, so you don't have to read the Word, but you do have to have the Word. 
So you listen to it. That, that counts. Use that smartphone for good. You have the whole word in your pocket. Read or listen to it on your commute. And then pay closer attention to it. And all that simply means is, is think on it. And that's all meditation is. You can start most simply with three questions. Like what's one thing that this teaches me about God? Then take that one thing and turn it into a prayer of praise. Second, what is one thing this teaches me about myself and my sin? Take that one thing and turn it into a prayer of repentance. Third, what is one thing I can ask God for from this text? And then take that and turn it into a prayer of petition. You've now read and meditated and prayed. You have very intentionally given your attention to the things of God. And then come back to it throughout the day. Listen, I am very forgetful. But write down one big idea and then take it with you throughout the day and think over it and come back to it. And mine yesterday ended up being that whole, this whole last point. It was Hebrews 2 verse 1. I must pay closer attention to what I have heard. Mine this morning was, was Psalm 37 verse 4 where in the ESV it says, delight yourself in the Lord. The translation that I was reading, this guy's own, this Hebrew scholar's own translation, he says, find your pleasure in the Lord. That, again, that, I think that's a foreign concept to many of us. I know, that's, I know I still struggle with that, but that's, that's what I want. I want to find my pleasure, my delight, my joy, my everything in him. So now I've got Psalm 37.4 cycling through my brain, and I'm coming back to it. What am, I, what am I finding pleasure in right now? Am I enjoying this thing and using it as a beam to draw me back and lead me to the Lord as the giver of all um, good um, things? And that, and that's, this is how you do it. You read, you meditate, you pray, and you come back to it. You give yourself a specific time to do it, and you do it day and night. You have jobs, you have kids, you have things that you have to do. But what are you doing? You're talking to yourself. Why am I grumpy? Why am I miserable? Delight yourself in the Lord. What if all these things are true? Why in the world would I be uh, grumpy? And so I'm coming back to these things, and I'm taking hold of my soul as David does, and I'm speaking to my soul. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. And I'm taking what I'm feeling and experiencing, and I'm bringing it in line with what is true from God's word. I'm bringing to bear God's truth on my life by the grace of God. You've now paid much closer attention to what you have heard, to God and his word. And this is, this is where you find life. Uh, the, the word is where you find Christ. And so listen, this is how, that's how you feed on him. That's, that's how you take him into your heart, right? We find great joy in spending time with one another and hearing from one another and learning of one another. That's what we get in the word with God himself uh, working um, through these things. So take him in. Chew, ruminate, fill your mind, fix your attention. And listen, he is so good and glorious that when you do that, by God's grace, you cannot help but be comforted and changed. To abide in the word is to live by his words, the words of eternal life. The words that not only say, yes, they say, praise God, but they also sustain and satisfy now. The words that are not only for the fullness of life to come, but the fullness of life now. Contentment and rest and peace and joy now. That's what I desperately want for all of us. I was reading a book this week on the Sabbath by Walter Chantry, and he writes this, Ministers must learn the enormous importance of evoking joyful praise from the hearts of the people. That's a lot harder than expositing and teaching a text to you. I want to evoke joyful praise from your hearts by pointing you uh, to the God who is 
life. I want to be glad in the Lord so that I can better help you be glad in the Lord. And I am confident that you will not find great gladness in the Lord apart from the word of the Lord. And so I want to commend it to you and encourage you to think deep and long on the things of God. Because the God that is revealed in his word is so good and knowing him is life and there's nothing more important. Give your attention to that which is most important. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me give Thomas Watson the last word. This is all strange and foreign and weird to you. Meditation, that sounds very strange. Go read Thomas Watson's treatise on meditation. It's called A Christian on the Mount. It's very short. It's 50 pages. You can read it for free uh, online. It's well worth your time. But Thomas Watson writes this. This is, this is what I want. He says, grace, everything starts there. Grace breeds delight in God. And delight breeds meditation. Right? I don't want to get home, not home. I want to get to my wife and to my kids because I find delight in them. What does that then produce? That produces my thinking upon them and my talking to them and my pursuing um, them. Grace breeds delight. Delight breeds meditation. Meditation is a duty wherein consists the very essentials of religion and which nourishes the very lifeblood of it. And elsewhere, he goes on to quote someone else that says, meditation is the treasury where all the graces are locked up. Here's the secret. Here's the treasury. It's all there. It's accessed by meditation. And he says, meditation sweetly puts us in heaven before we arrive there and brings God and the soul together. So you can have that now. You can have that delight now. That's what we want. Grace breeds it. Grace then, that then breeds meditation, which then puts us sweetly into heaven even now and brings us into ever closer communion with the God who is life and joy and peace. So pay closer attention to what you have heard. Feed by faith on the Christ who is life, who saves and sustains and satisfies through the word that is life. Let me close you uh, with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. There is infinite pleasure and delight and joy to be found in you. And yet, so often, Father, we don't even look. So often, we don't even taste. But Father, you have shown us how. You have given us your word. You have commended to us and commanded us to abide in that word, to meditate on that word, to fill our minds and to give our attention to that which is life and joy and peace. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to do that. Help us to see this not just as a duty. There's nothing wrong with duty. Duty is good. Um, Father, help us to be more disciplined. But Father, move and motivate us by showing us the delight that is to be found as we find you um, through your word. Father, I pray that you would lead me to find my pleasure in you and in you alone um, so that I could help my family and my, my church to better and better find their pleasure in you and you alone. And Father, you have been faithfully good um, to us um, this year. You have continued to bless and to sustain and, and protect and, and to grow. Um, Father, we deserve none of the good things that you have given to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage us and comfort us. I pray that you would give us great joy in the Lord. Father, bless my brothers and sisters. Bless them uh, by showing them Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.